welcome to the Everyday Neuro podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Janine Cooper, and I'm aiming to provide you with knowledge and inspiration into understanding the fascinating world of the human brain. Whether you already have some experience or this is the start of your journey, then the Everyday Neuro podcast series has something to offer you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy discovering all about the human brain. In today's podcast, I'm going to be talking about head injury, and in particular, I will be looking at concussion and talking with Brody Ingham, who has done a study investigating concussion in Australian gridiron players. I'd like to start by introducing you to the definition of what an acquired brain injury or a ABI is. Well, it's any damage to the brain that occurs after birth with the exception of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. ABIs can be placed into two distinct categories, non-traumatic brain injuries, which include things such as tumours or a lack of oxygen to the brain known as hypoxia, toxins, brain infections or inflammation, and also cerebrovascular disease, which is commonly known as stroke, and this is the leading cause of non-traumatic brain injury. The other category of ABI are traumatic brain injuries or TBIs. Falls are one of the major causes of traumatic brain injury as well as motor vehicle accidents, being involved in an assault, being a pedestrian and also when you take part in sporting activities, especially those that include high impact movements. I'll be talking a lot more about this at the end of this podcast. Often people associate a traumatic brain injury with injury to the head where there might be an open wound or a fracture to the skull and many people do believe that there will be a loss of consciousness when in fact that's not the case. It is due to these erroneous beliefs that many people don't even recognize that they've had a brain injury. They just think they've had a little bump or knock to the head. As a result, many people don't seek medical advice, which leads to underreporting of brain injury. And this affects our understanding of the true incidence of TBI. To try and get a little bit more clarity on the incidence of TBI internationally, Rita Nguyen and colleagues in 2016 published a research article and I've provided that for you in the show notes which can be found on the Everyday Neuro podcast page. In a traumatic brain injury where there's external force to the brain then something called a coup injury occurs under the site of impact with the object. For example you could be walking down the road and you trip and fall and your head strikes the ground. Well that's the site of injury and therefore this is the coup injury. Now let's imagine another scenario where a person is travelling in a car and they are involved in an accident whereby their head strikes the steering wheel. In this case, that's the coup injury, but something else is also happening. The brain has accelerated forward, but it also then deaccelerates and hits the back of the skull. And this is called a contra-coup injury. If you'd like a little bit more clarity, then please look at the diagram I've provided in the show notes. When a person has a brain injury where there is a loss of consciousness, then this is usually due to bruising that occurs at sites within the brain called the splenium of the corpus callosum, which is this white matter bundle that joins the left and the right hemispheres together, and also the brainstem, which is vital for our autonomic nervous system. So let's discuss some of the things that actually happen to the brain when it's involved in a head injury. 
There are the immediate or primary things that occur, and these represent the direct result of the rapid acceleration and deceleration of the head. And this can cause distortions or fractures of the skull, but not always. Contusions and lacerations, which result from different movements between the brain and the skull or the brain and the dura. And the cortex, which is the neurons, may repeatedly impact against the dura or against the bony irregularities of the skull, which can cause damage. Also, there can be areas where there are bleeds in the brain, known as local hemorrhages. And also there can be damage to what we call white matter, which is the axons of neurons. But before I go any further, I just want to reassure you that if you're not sure what some of these terms mean, such as dura, corpus callosum or axon, then please listen to episode one, Introduction to the Brain, as I go over these terms in quite a lot of detail and it will help with your understanding of this podcast. Axons after a traumatic brain injury can stretch and break. This disrupts the directional flow of water as the fluid leaks from the broken axon and into the area that surrounds it. To try and fix the problem, the brain uses astrocytes, which act as a glue to repair the broken axon. To try and remove the fluid that's now entered the space around the broken axon, macrophages come along and try to digest the particles in a process called phagocytosis. There are also many blood vessels and fine arteries throughout the grey and white matter of the brain. And if they get pulled and stretched, then they too can break and cause microbleeds. We can use imaging to help us see these in the brain and something called susceptibility weighted imaging or SWE is now being used a lot to have a look at these tiny microbleeds in vivo. Unfortunately, the blood involved in the microbleeds is toxic to the brain and therefore it can continue to cause damage after the initial injury. We have now talked about what happens to the brain after a TBI, but how do we measure the severity of the injury? One way is to assess the depth of unconsciousness using the Glasgow Coma Scale or the GCS and this is administered at the time of the injury as well as on admission to hospital and over time so that we can monitor change. Also, the duration of post-traumatic amnesia, or PTA, is a reliable way for ascertaining severity, and the Westmead PTA scale is commonly used. If you'd like more information about this, then why not take the brain injury workshop that is currently being run by Everyday Neuro? So imagine that you've had a knock to the head and have a mild traumatic brain injury. You could also be told you have a concussion because these two terms are used interchangeably. For the rest of the podcast, I'm going to refer to concussion, which is basically a knock, blow or jolt to the head. And concussion can affect one or more of several clinical domains, such as physical signs and symptoms, cognitive impairment and changes to your behavior. So physical signs and symptoms can include dizziness, headache, drowsiness and blurred vision. Cognitive impairment can include a loss of memory and also deficits to our attention and our ability to make plans and decisions known as executive function. These changes in cognition are most likely due to the areas of the brain that are associated with these functions being damaged and the areas are usually the medial temporal lobes and regions of the frontal lobes. 
Another area of cognitive change is expressive language or our ability to communicate. However, the research in this area is mixed and therefore it's debatable and requires further investigation. After a concussion, people might also notice a change in their behavior. They may become more irritable and there could be changes in their emotional ability. And also sometimes there are mood disorders such as depression and anxiety. Some of these changes can be a result of direct damage to the brain, whereas others are psychological due to a person feeling vulnerable after the injury and also the self-perception that there are changes for the worse to some of their abilities. As the symptoms of a concussion vary between individuals, this ambiguity has made it difficult to create a set of criteria to help us diagnose a concussion. For most, it's not all doom and gloom, though, as according to McDesey and colleagues in 2013, over 80% of people who have sustained a clinically diagnosed concussion fully recover in about 7 to 10 days. However, in some cases, if symptoms do persist for more than three months, then the person may be suffering from something called post-concussive syndrome or PCS. It occurs in about 5-10% to of cases and while complete recovery is expected, permanent PCS does occur. In severe cases of concussion, then CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy can occur and this is a degenerative brain disease. So unfortunately, we can't diagnose it until we review the brain after someone has passed away. Investigations of CTE primarily focused on boxers, but in recent years it's now expanded to include gridiron, martial arts, ice hockey and also Australian football. Players such as the ones I've mentioned who are involved in high impact sports are now dedicating their brains once they pass away to sports related brain banks so that further investigation of the effects of concussions can be explored. If you'd like more information about CTE, then please look at the Everyday Neuro podcast page and in the show notes, you will find links to the Concussion Legacy Foundation. So as I've mentioned earlier, there has been an increase in studies of concussion in sport due to the high number of athletes who do sustain concussions and injuries to the head. To create conceptual understanding of sports-related concussion, there is a concussion in sports group that have had five meetings since 2001 and the most recent meeting took place in Berlin in 2016. The outcome of the meetings are documented in a consensus statement which the authors encourage people to copy and freely distribute. So I've done exactly that and I've provided the paper by Paul McCrory and colleagues in the show notes. The statement includes the 11 R's of SRC management. This consensus statement is really trying to advance our knowledge on how to manage sports-related concussions and also it will reduce the worry that is often placed on people when they are taking part in these high-impact sports. As you may know from listening to episodes two and three from the Everyday Neuro podcast series, I'm an advocate of taking part in sport as it's been found to be hugely beneficial to not only our physical fitness, but as we get older, it also helps with cognition and of course, our overall well-being. But of late, there have been many parents fearful of letting their children take part in sports because they're reading media articles that suggest that their children are in danger of sustaining 
head injuries that could lead to problems for their child's cognition as well as behavior. However, what I'd like to stress is that it's really important that children and adults, of course, continue to play these sports because it brings so much enjoyment. What we do need to do is follow the kind of advice that we're getting in the 2016 consensus statement, whereby we're managing anybody that sustains a knock to the head at the time of the injury. By removing them from play, they can be evaluating using concussion measures such as the sports concussion assessment tool, now in its fifth version known as the SCAT-5, and they've also recently developed that to include a measure for children. Unlike professional sports such as US gridiron, those played at an amateur level may not have the resources necessary to be able to implement the consensus guidelines and sideline evaluation may not take place and this could lead to higher risk of concussion-related symptoms. And that leads me very nicely to the next part of this podcast, which is to chat with Brodie Ingham, who has been looking at issues such as this in a group of Australian gridiron players. Hi, Brodie. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Everyday Neuro podcast series. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So why gridiron? Uh, Well, my partner actually plays it. Uh, So as the kind of devoted girlfriend, I guess, I've had to learn to appreciate the sport. I'm sure there's many of us that can relate to that scenario, Brodie. I didn't realise there was an Australian Gridiron League. How many players are there currently in it? Uh, There's over 3,000 players within Australia and it's actually played at quite a high level, which surprised me. There's actually a national championship happening currently. Okay, so this is going on right now. And is this a collegiate or professional sport? This is actually just an amateur sport, so it's considered a hobby, I guess, um, which does really mean that there is limited funding and education on things like concussion within the sport. Right. So does that mean that's potentially why you wanted to look at concussion in Australian gridiron? Yeah, definitely. I really wanted to investigate uh, the effects of sustaining a concussion on a player's cognition and well-being, especially considered the that amateur nature of the sport. So when you say cognition and well-being, what did you look at? So in terms of cognition, we looked at uh, memory, expressive language and um, executive functioning, which just means how, how a person thinks things through in life. And then with well-being, we looked at how a concussion may affect levels of stress, anxiety and depression. Did you have many volunteers? Yeah, I was really lucky. I had 39 players participate over teams in South Australia and Victoria. It's really great to hear that you had so many players wanting to be involved and showing support for doing the study. Yeah, correct. It was definitely supported by Gridiron Australia as well. And a lot of the coaches were really eager to get their players involved. So what did you find in your pilot study? So perhaps the biggest thing we found was that there seems to be a real discrepancy between uh, medically diagnosed concussions, which we defined as concussions that were diagnosed by a medical professional, and then concussions that were self-diagnosed. And by this, we meant that players could look back at their symptoms and think about it after, and they decided themselves that that would have been a concussion. Okay, so does that mean those self-diagnosed weren't reported to a medical professional? 
professionals. So therefore, they would have basically been underreported. Yeah, that's correct. So these players didn't, even during the game, they didn't seek medical attention. They might have had a break off the field for maybe 30 seconds, maybe half a quarter, but it's highly likely that they then went back on the field uh, without reporting the situation. What impact does that have for the players? Well, uh, one anecdote that I heard while collecting some data was that one player suffered a concussion, could recognise it as a concussion, but didn't report the injury and then went to work on Monday where this player was a health professional and they really felt like they needed a second person to check over their work because the whole day they were quite foggy. That game might have occurred on a Saturday, so that's two days later that they're still feeling the effects of that injury. Wow, that sounds really serious. Are there any other issues that players should be aware of? Because that's sounding like something that could really impact not only the individual, but also other people. Yes, unfortunately, there is a condition, although rare and controversial, can be present in this high impact sporting environment. And this is SIS, second impact syndrome, and it involves two events. So the first is the initial head injury and the presence of these post-concussive symptoms. And then the second is a second head trauma while still symptomatic of that first injury. And this is where it does get quite dangerous for the player because the brain hasn't had a chance to recover from that first uh, injury, but yet you've created another impact for it. So it struggles. My goodness. So this is, I know it's SIS is a rare and controversial condition, but there really does seem to be potential in sports like gridiron where you are getting hit time and time again for this SIS to actually occur. Yeah, that's correct. It is hard to diagnose, especially considering the under-reporting of the injuries, and it is a real concern considering the rate of under-reporting concussions is so high. So what do you think uh, most people can get from this pilot research that you conducted? What I'm really hoping is that studies like this can increase the education and the understanding of concussion within sport and therefore really increase the rate of reporting of these injuries and create a really safe environment where the players and the teams support these injuries that you can't necessarily see, but the symptoms are really very seriously there. So does that mean that at the moment players aren't aware of the serious nature of sustaining what to them might just be a bump to the head? Well, that's highly possible. Unfortunately, it works both ways. So players who don't know the severity of these injuries don't know that it's important to report them. But then also players who do know about concussion, because they know what it is and they've felt these symptoms potentially before, they then don't feel like they need the medical attention because in their eyes, all a doctor will do is say it's a concussion. So that's where the education of the concept that concussions really do need a lot of care and they do need to be treated, that will assist the increased rates of reporting as well. Okay, so your study really is aiming to educate. What does the future hold for research in this area, Brody? Well, we actually 
are just about to start recruitment for a, a bigger, broader, more sensitive study, really expanding on the pilot study and further investigating these issues within the Australian gridiron cohort. We're really looking for any male gridiron players at this point. There are female players, but at the moment the studies are just focusing on the men and these players can be current or retired and we would just love people to get in touch and participate. Oh, wonderful. Well, I will put the link to your study on the Everyday Neuro website and also on the Facebook page. Best of luck with it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So that brings me to the end of this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned a little bit about head injury. And in particular, should you or someone you know sustain a hit to the head, then please do seek medical advice because it could be a concussion. Please take really good care of that wonderful brain of yours. And I hope you can join me again for another episode of the Everyday Neuro Podcast Series. Take care. Take care.